The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I want, I want to start actually in the scripture tonight. If you have a Bible, why don't you take it and look with me at Psalm 84. Next week I'm going to be speaking at a conference on this psalm. And I chose it specifically because we're going through Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, it mentions, uh, in the NIV at least, um, a pilgrimage. And so uh, take a minute, if you would, and look at Psalm 84. And we'll begin just with a devotion from this. You didn't find it, huh? Don't worry about it. Yeah. No, thanks. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house that are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor upon your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God then dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. You see verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Other translations talk about the highways being in their hearts. The fact of the matter is, in Israel they were raised highways. And they all led to Zion. They led to Jerusalem. And so three times a year, the law of Moses mandated that all of the men, the Jewish men, travel to Jerusalem. Three feasts a year. And so you can imagine you'd be stopping all of your work in the fields, whatever your labor was, and you would join on the highways with all of these other men and probably their families a lot of times would go with them too. And so all of Israel is moving. They're on the move. They're traveling, and it's a pilgrimage. And as they were going, a lot of times they would sing these songs of ascents, which are in Psalm 120 through 130-some-odd. There were different psalms about the journey up to Jerusalem. They would be praying for their families, praying for Israel, thinking about, uh, about their lives. And Psalm 84, I think, is a song of ascent. As they go up to Jerusalem, they're singing and thinking about this. And their hearts, it, set, it says, are set on pilgrimage. They're thinking about this journey. And why? what's at the end of the journey? What is the psalmist excited about? Zion. Okay, what's Zion? <laughs> yeah, ultimately heaven, but Jerusalem. Well, what's he going to see in Jerusalem when he, gets, when he gets there? What is he excited about in Psalm 84? Worship. He wants to be near God. And for a Jew in the Old Covenant, being at the temple was to be near God. That's where you had to offer your sacrifices. You weren't allowed to offer them anywhere else. You had to offer them at the temple. And so it represented fellowship with God. 
And so I think it really is a good picture also of what's covered in Pilgrim's Progress. They're journeying from the outskirts, the outlying areas, all the way to the celestial city. Christian life is a pilgrimage, isn't it? Can you think of a pilgrimage verse concerning the Christian life? What do you think, Steve? That's right, Hebrews 11. Uh, This isn't their home. This isn't where they live. They're just strangers and aliens passing through. They lived in tents. And they didn't set down roots. That's great. Or how about the famous John 14:6? Does anyone know what that says? That's right. How is that a pilgrimage verse? How is that a pilgrimage verse? What's well, a way? Well, it's a highway. It's a place where you make a journey, right? And it is a journey. Remember how Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I'm going? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're not at that place now, so you have to journey, you have to travel to get there. So we're on a pilgrimage, aren't we? And I think a lot of times as Christians, we don't think that way, right? The only pilgrimage in evangelicalism is the one down the aisle, right? (laughs) And once you go down the aisle, you've made your pilgrimage. There's no other pilgrimage to make, right? But that's not true. Uh, That's just the beginning of the journey, isn't it? And that's what Pilgrim's Progress covers. Now, tonight, we're going to be talking about some trials. You know, if you look at Psalm 84, it says, as they pass through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now, the Valley of Baca uh, relates to the Hebrew for weeping. It's a valley of weeping. It's a valley of distress and torment and trouble, a valley of trial. In other words, as you're pilgriming, as you're going along on your pilgrimage, as you're making your journey, you're going to go through hard times. And they make it a valley of springs, a place where good things happen. And so we're going to see tonight, as Christian goes through the valley of humiliation and the valley of the shadow of death, how God sustains him and strengthens him. And it's interesting, in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, Christiana goes through and they talk about the valley of humiliation as a fertile place where, good, where things grow. It's a great place to be. So we're going to talk about that tonight. But before we begin, why don't, begin, why don't we start with some prayer? Father, we thank you tonight for the time that we have to study Pilgrim's Progress. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn. Uh, Nothing is greater than Scripture, and no book can teach us or instruct us about the Christian way more than the Holy Scripture. But yet we thank you, O Lord, for those that have gone before us and written down uh, for our instruction, their teachings. And uh, I thank you for the allegory that Bunyan has left us, Pilgrim's Progress. And I pray that tonight as we look at his journeying through the valley of Uh, humiliation in the valley of the shadow of death and as we uh, see the things that he went through that we would be encouraged in our journeying as well as in our struggles in our trials in jesus name amen all right so far we've seen christian begin his whole trip in the city of destruction and he is confronted there by a man named evangelist and evangelist uh, using the book that's in his hand, urges him to flee from the wrath to come. And so he eventually runs out of his city. He uh, gets snared up in the slough of despond. He's discouraged initially in his journey, but eventually he manages to get to the wicked gate. <clears throat> and in the wicked gate, uh, once he gets through it, after Beelzebub's final attacks there, he begins his Christian journey. Uh, I think really at that point, having entered the narrow gate, he's become a Christian. Uh, after that, he uh, gets instructed at Interpreter's house, and Interpreter shows him many things useful for his Christian journey. He continues on from there to the Hill Difficulty. Uh, and as he travels up the Hill Difficulty, oh, wait a minute, I'm forgetting something. The cross and the sepulcher, what happened there? He, re- he lost his burden. 
<clears throat> don't want to skip the cross. He comes to the cross and he loses his burden and the burden falls off his back and rolls down into the sepulcher representing Christ's resurrection. <clears throat> and he says, and I saw it no more. And so he travels from there to the hill difficulty and halfway up there's a little arbor, a little comfortable place where he can rest. And he did rest. And he rested and rested and rested some more. Fell asleep. Was there way too long. And as he was sleeping, uh, he lost his scroll. The scroll represents his assurance. Um, he continued on his journey, but then found that he'd lost the scroll, and he has to retrace his steps. He has to go all the way back and pick up the scroll, and he does that. Once he gets to the top, he goes through between two lions that are chained and manages to get to the pleasant house, uh, the palace beautiful, where he's welcomed in, and I believe this represents fellowship in a local church. He goes into the local church, the fellowship, and there he has some godly discourse with some women there, piety and prudence and discretion, and they talk together about godly things. Uh, they, have you had fellowship like that this week? Have you been able to talk with Christians about some godly things or just about the ball game last night or whatever, all-star game, 7-7? Seven, seven. I mean, how, how can you end up with a tie in an all-star game? But at any rate, why waste time on those things? Instead, Christians, when they get together, they should be talking about godly things. One of the most, I think, in, amazing sections of that is the discussion he has um, over his family. And you remember what happens in that. Uh, they're talking uh, to him about his family. And what's the concern there? Who can remember? Mike? Of the, yeah, they're talking about his family and they start asking Christian about his family. And what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, why didn't they come with you? And, and, you know, she grills him. She just keeps asking, well, didn't you do this? How about that? Did you pray for them? Did you keep asking them? Did you live a godly life in front of them? And so uh, I find that very convicting because this shows me also in some degree how we are going to be accountable for the people in our lives, how we're going to be asked on Judgment Day about this or that relationship. At any rate, once he's done with the uh, palace, uh, with the palace beautiful, he wants to begin his journey again. And so we're going to start on page 111 in my version. Uh, as he leaves the palace beautiful and he goes on with discretion, piety, charity, and prudence uh, as they accompany him. Now, he's going to be descending down into the valley of humiliation. And as he goes down, it says, uh, he found it difficult going down. And as he went down, it says uh, that he caught a slip or two. In other words, he slipped and fell. Uh, perhaps he got some mud on him or whatever. And uh, this ends up being very significant. As he enters into the valley of humiliation, he goes down with some problems. Now, every little thing is significant in Pilgrim's Progress. The slip or two that he catches refer to sins, things that he did or thought that made it difficult for him entering into the Valley of Humiliation. Now, when he enters the Valley of Humiliation, it says poor Christian was hard put to it, for he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him, and his name was Apollyon. Now, this represents nothing other than the devil himself. Apollyon is going to set upon Christian and it's time for temptation. It's time for a struggle with the devil, a battle with the devil. But before we go on into a struggle with the devil, I want to read something from the second part of Christian of Pilgrim's Progress about Christiana, his wife, who eventually does come, and about the Valley of Humiliation. Now, this is from part two, and it says there that as Christiana and the family began to go down the Valley of Humiliation, they found it steep and it slippery, but they were very careful and did not slip. Okay? So there are no slips this time. And they're with a guide named Greatheart, and Greatheart's going with them. And Greatheart, they're very concerned about entering the Valley of Humiliation. They're very worried. They're concerned about what's going to happen. 
And Greatheart says, you know, this place has a, has a worse reputation than it deserves. It actually is a good place to be. They say, well, what about Christian? He fights Apollyon there. He had all kinds of troubles. And he said, actually, it is true that Christian did here meet with Apollyon, with whom he also had a sore combat. But that fray was the fruit of those slips that he got in his going down the hill. For they that get slips there must look for combats here. You have no trouble, he said, in the Valley of Humiliation except what you bring with you into the valley. So it's very interesting. And this is, this is again, the rhythm of the Christian life, the rhythm of Pilgrim's Progress. They have difficulties and trials and then they have places of refuge where you get restored and renewed. But it seems that all the time these places of refuge end up being a stumbling block in some small way. He leaves the palace beautiful and he's not careful as he enters into the Valley of Humiliation. Maybe he's full of himself. Maybe he's all pumped up or something like that. And he's not careful. And so he enters with these slips or two. But then I'm going to go on from the second part and describe the Valley of Humiliation. This Valley of Humiliation is of itself as fruitful a place as any the crow flies over. It's good fertile farmland, he says. Then James said to his mother, Lo, yonder stands a pillar, and it looks as if something's written thereon. Let us go and see what it is. James is Christian's son. So they went and found there, let Christian's slips before he came hither and the battles that he meets with in this place be a warning to those that come after. So be careful how you enter into the Valley of Humiliation. And then he describes it further. We will come again to this Valley of Humiliation. It is the best and most useful piece of ground in all those parts. It is fat ground. Isn't that great? It is fat ground. And as you see, consisteth, consisteth much in meadows. And if a man was to come here in the summertime, as we do now, and if he knew not anything before thereof, and if he also delighted himself in the sight of his eyes, he might see that this would be a delightful place to him. In other words, except for the terrible reputation that the Valley of Humiliation has, you'd see that it's a beautiful place to be. It's actually a good place to live. I have also known many laboring men that have got good estates in this Valley of Humiliation for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think there's two right here. Is it? Yeah, come on. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, when you're humble, when you're you know, in a low estate... You're at your best. That's the best place to be. And actually, you should never leave there, should you? Because in order to leave the Valley of Humiliation, you need to become what? Prideful, right? You need to be proud. And once you're proud, God begins to resist and oppose you and gets you back into a humbled state. Now, as they're going along the Valley of Humiliation and talking, they espied a boy feeding his father's sheep. The boy was in very mean clothes. That means very rough clothing. But he was of a very fresh and well-favored countenance. In other words, he had a healthy, good look to him. And as he sat by himself, he sang. Hark, said Mr. Greatheart, to what the shepherd boy saith. Listen to what he says. So they hearkened, and this was his song. He that is down needs fear no falls. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble shall ever have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much, and Lord, contentment still I crave because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is that go on pilgrimage. Here little and hereafter bliss is best from age to age. Did you hear that? Here little, hereafter bliss is best from age to age. Living a humble, simple lifestyle. If we have food and clothing, 
will be satisfied with that. But once you start to want great things for yourself, like Baruch and Jeremiah 45, if you ask great things for yourself, ask them not, you start leaving the Valley of Humiliation, you get into trouble again. So I'm putting in a good word for the Valley of Humiliation, but you have to wait until the second part of uh, Pilgrim's Progress to get it. For Christian, it's nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. And so he's going to face, in the Valley of Humiliation, Apollyon. Now the word Apollyon means destroyer. This is the destroyer of souls. This is the devil himself. The Bible says that we have a personal Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You have a Savior who knows you by name. A Savior who has nothing but your great interests at heart. A Savior who will spare nothing to bless you. You also have a personal enemy, the devil, who knows you by name, who hates you and will spare nothing to destroy you. Does that unnerve you to have an intelligent enemy who lays traps for you and schemes for you and seeks every day to destroy you? Does that trouble you at all? Well, it should. You should be concerned. Actually, you're supposed to watch for him. You're supposed to be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so it's a, something to be worried about, something to be concerned about. It bothers me to think of an intelligent being who's been around for thousands of years, much smarter and more powerful than me, who wants to destroy me today. Do you ever wonder about that? And don't you see the hedge of protection that God has put around you, that you would be safe and secure? What do you think your day would be like if God for one day removed that hedge of protection and said to Satan and to his demons, have at them? What would that day be like? He'd wish you were dead. I mean, it'd be the worst day of your life. Conversely, suppose he said, you will do absolutely nothing to them at all today. No temptations, no snares, no, tr no troubles. Demons and Satan must totally leave this one alone for the full day. What would that day be like? <laughs> be like heaven on earth. We don't even realize the spiritual oppression that we face every day. We're just used to it, like the atmospheric pressure around us. At any rate, there are times of severe, terrible testing, and that's what uh, Christian is facing here. Now, as Christian sees this foul fiend, Apollyon, coming on him, Christian, it says, began to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. Listen, but he considered again that he had no armor for his backside. You understand that? And therefore, that he, uh, he thought that to turn the back to him might actually give him the greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. And therefore, he resolved to venture and to stand his ground. For, thought he, I have no more in my eye than the... If I had no more in my eye than the saving of my life, it would be better for me to stand here than to turn and flee. He's got no armor for his back. If you look at Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor, you see the breastplate and you see the, you see the shield and the sword and all that, but you've got nothing for your back. And why is that? Because you're not supposed to turn your back. What does Ephesians 6 tell you to do when the devil comes attacking? Stand. It says it again and again. Stand. Stand firm. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Just stand your ground. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So here comes Apollyon. So on he went and Apollyon met him. Now, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear. And out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And when he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance, <laughs> and thus began to question with him, Whence come you, and whither are you bound? Everybody in this story asks Christian that, by the way. <laughs> where did you come from, and where are you going? Well, this time it's Apollyon. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I, come, I am come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and am going to the city of Zion. 
said Christian. Apollyon, by this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, he said. For all that country is mine, and I am the prince and god of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope that thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. So what does Apollyon first claim there? What does he say? He says he's God, God of the world, and that Christian is what? You're mine. And how is it that you got away? And you know something? It's actually true. You know, it says that Christ has rescued us or delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us over into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Now, of course, Satan's ownership of the world and of the uh, people in it don't do him, doesn't do him any good because it's temporary, right? And in the end, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. But in the meantime, he is called the God of this world. And he says, I perceive that you're one of my subjects. How is it then that you're fleeing my service? He's coming back to get what belongs to him. And he says, you know, I'm hoping that actually... Uh, there, I think there's... See over here, Mark? Or right here? Hey, welcome. I'm hoping that, you know, you may do me more service. What does that mean? What does Apollyon mean by, were it not for the fact that I hope that you might still do me some good service, I'd kill you now. What service does Apollyon hope Christian is going to render to him? Well, what does Apollyon want to do to Christian? Turn him back. Send him back to the city of destruction. And why? Because it would do great honor to him to have somebody relapse in their faith, somebody to turn back from their Christian commitment. And so he says, this is the great service that you're going to do me. He doesn't say it straight out, but that's what he's getting at. Now, Christian answers, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard. It was hard to serve you, devil. (laughs) And your wages are such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did, as other considerate persons do, look out if perhaps I might mend myself. In other words, I got sick of serving you, devil, and it's time for me to move on. Apollyon answered, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects, and that is true. Think about it now. Does the devil lightly give up any of his? Not at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So basically the image is the church is storming the gates jumping over the gates into Hades to rescue the dying, rescue the perishing. Like commandos. Do you see yourself that way? Special special commandos going into the devil's territory to rescue the perishing. And that's exactly what it is. He says, no prince gives his subjects up lightly. Jesus himself said the same thing. When a strong man with all of his armor around him is fully in his power, he keeps his goods safe. But when someone stronger comes and overpowers him and binds him up, then he can plunder his house. So he is the one who's stronger than the strong man and comes and plunders his house. But anyway, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects. Neither will I as yet lose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. Now, what's going on there? What's he tempting him with? He said, if you'll go back, what's he going to give him? Hmm? What do you think? Whatever our country affords, I'll give to you. Riches, fame, position, anything. This is Satan's first attempt, and this is how it works. You step out uh, for Christ, and all of a sudden, some doors, some opportunities open for you. Things that you've always wanted start to come your way, knocking on you, right? Embracing with a kiss and enticing you to go back. This is the very same approach that uh, he used with Jesus, isn't it? How did he tempt Christ? You remember? In the desert, what did he tempt him with that's just like this? 
Yes, but that's not the temptation I'm thinking of. That is true. But there's another one. He brought him up on a high mountain, and what did he show him? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you will simply bow down to me and worship me. And he said, away from me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But this is exactly what he's he promising him benefits and honors. Sell your soul to the devil. Christian answers, but I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes. And how can I with fairness go back with thee? Apollyon answered, thou hast done this, done in this according to the proverb, changed a bad for worse. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants after a while to give him the slip and return again to me. Ooh, that hurts. What he's saying is lots of people profess to serve Christ and then after a while they give him the slip and come back to me. Is that true? Sadly, it is. Many people begin the journey and don't finish it. He says, Do thou so also and all shall be well, said Apollyon. Christian, I have given him my faith, my promise. I've sworn my allegiance to him. How now can I go back uh, from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Apollyon answered, Thou didst the same to me. You betrayed me. You turned your back on me. And I'm now willing to forgive all and just take you back. I'll welcome you back if you'll just come back with me and all will be well. Christian, what I promised thee was when I was young, but now I count the prince under whose banner I now stand is able to absolve me. Yea, and to pardon also what I did in my compliance with thee. And besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak truth, I like his service. I like his wages. I like his servants, his government, his company, and his country better than yours. <laughs> I like being a Christian. I like Jesus. I like being with him. So why would I go back with you? And therefore, stop persuading me any further. I am his servant and will follow him. Well, after a bit of discussion, I'm going to skip ahead. Apollyon pulls out the heavy artillery. Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him, says Apollyon. And how dost thou think to receive wages from him? You've already betrayed him. You've already done wrong things. Wherein, o Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollyon, thou didst faint at first setting out when you were almost choked in the slough of despond. You did attempt wrong ways to be rid of your burden, whereas you should have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. In other words, when you went off to morality and legality, that whole thing. And then he says, you did sinfully sleep and lose your choice thing. You were also almost persuaded to go back when you saw the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have seen and heard, you are inwardly desirous of vain glory and all that thou sayest sayest and doest. So what is what is Apollyon doing here? That's right. He's accusing him of sin. Is it true? Actually it is. All of it. And that's the whole thing. That's what the devil does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10. Zechariah 3.1 speaks of uh, the high priest Joshua standing in filthy garments and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. That's what he does. He stands there and accuses. Now just stop a minute and think. Okay? This is the ultimate, the absolute ultimate hypocrisy, is it not? Has there ever been a sinner like the devil? Has there ever been anyone who has so opposed the will of God, who has so sought to do damage to God and to his people as the devil? And he's standing up righteously with the law of God in his hand, accusing you of wrongdoing? How does that make any sense? Well, that's, he's a hypocrite. He's the, he's the ultimate hypocrite when he accuses us of sin. Well, how does Christian reply? Well, the best reply is humility. All of this is true and actually much more beside. <laughs> it 
Isn't that great? And it's true. All of this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these infirmities possess me in thy country. For there I suck them in. And I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. In other words, when I was living in your country, in the city of destruction, I learned how to sin. You're a good instructor. Now I'm still laboring and burdened by that sin tendency or sin habit that I have. Oh, how I wish I were rid of it, he's saying. But at any rate, Christ is gracious and merciful, and he will forgive. All right, well, it's over now. It's time to fight. Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. So basically, let's see what you got. Apollyon, beware of what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the breadth of the way and said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no further. Here I will spill thy soul. So they're about ready to fight. And with that, he threw a flaming, a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw that it was time to bestir him. And Apollyon as fast uh, made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by the which notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon actually wounded him in his head, his hand, and his foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon therefore followed his work amain. And Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, must needs grow weaker and weaker. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian. And wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then Apollyon said, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death. So that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow thereby to make a full end of this good man Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it saying rejoice not against me O mine enemy when I fall I shall arise again Micah 7 8 isn't that a great verse got to have just the right verse at the right time he reaches for the sword and what is the sword the sword of the spirit which is the word of God so he reaches for Micah 7 8 is that what you'd reach for what does Micah 7, 8 say? Don't triumph over me. I'm going to get up. And so up comes the word of God. And with that, he gave Apollyon a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved him. So another Bible verse. Take that. And with that, Apollyon sped forth his dragon, spread forth his dragon's wings and sped him away that Christian for a season saw him no more. So that's incredible. Now, what do we learn from all that? First of all, Christian was wounded. What does that represent? Battling with the devil, struggling. What do the wounds represent? Discouragement, trials. Does the devil actually make inroads into your faith, into your thoughts and your imaginations? Of course he does. And so there are wounds and it weakens you as you go. And therefore, the Lord is going to measure out how long these things will go on because they can't go on forever. The fact of the matter is you could lose your faith if God didn't measure out trials. Does he measure out trials? 
Yes, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation will make a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. And so he filters, 1 Corinthians 10, your trials. It's only going to last so long. Remember, as he's wounded, he's about to die. Apollyon says, I'm sure of you now. The next thing that Bunyan writes is, as God would have it, such and such, God is not going to let you die. And so the sword's right in reach, and out comes Micah 7, 8. You know what it teaches me, though, is the needfulness to memorize Scripture. Have it ready. Saturate your mind with it. How did Jesus fight the devil in, the, in his time of temptation? That's right. Scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. Three times he says that. Now, he didn't need to do that, did he? He did not need to say, it is written, it is written, it is written. He could have simply said, go, because in Matthew chapter 8, when he meets legion, the demons, right, he says, go, and they obey. Why didn't he do that? He set an, an example for us how we might succeed in our battle with the devil. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but what? On every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's powerful, isn't it? So, memorize the scripture. Get ready for your battle with Apollyon. Resist the devil, the scripture says, and he will flee from you. And so the devil flees. But at the end, he says, he flees for a season. What does that mean? He's coming back. Do you understand? I don't understand where the devil gets his perseverance. I mean, he never gives up. He didn't give up with, with Jesus either. Remember? It says that he left Jesus for a while until an opportune time. And then he's looking again to come in and press his advantage. And it's the devil. Well, in this combat, it says, no man can imagine unless he had seen and heard, as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon. And on the other side, what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. One of the things that I've learned just as a Christian is that Satan's number one weapon is intimidation. And what he seeks to do, therefore, is to discourage you. Intimidation and discouragement go together. He intimidates so that you will be discouraged. And why? Because if you venture forth to fight and to stand and to succeed, you will. You will succeed. You will conquer through Christ. And so what he wants you to do is give up in the fight. He wants you to lay back, give up, lay down, never try. Don't put on your spiritual armor. Don't take on that besetting sin. He whispers in your ear, I've got you, you're mine. Sooner or later, you'll give in. So why try? Right? You heard that whispering before. Why even try? Why does he do that? Because he can't win if you go out and take the battlefield against. And so he's going to try to intimidate. And so there's big noise and lots of yelling and screaming and all that kind of thing. That's the devil's language. And this is how it works. You know, look at that Saul of Tarsus, Paul, the apostle, right? At first, the world wants to give success, wealth, all kinds of, of honors. That was his career as a Jew, right? Welcoming him, blessing him. He's going higher and higher. Then, once he commits to Christ and starts preaching, the world wants to give him uh, persecution, rejection, and ultimately, riots. And think about that, right? Have you ever been in a riot in which people were screaming away with them, away with them, kill them? Well, that's intimidating, but that's the devil. He's screaming, he's yelling, trying to intimidate. The Apostle Paul won't give in. And so he says in the dream, in this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen it, the yelling and hideous roaring of Apollyon. You have to be courageous to look through. And I never saw him, Christian, all the while give so much as one pleasant look, Christian, uh, never once, until he perceived he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. Then indeed did he smile and look upward, but it was the dreadfulest sight that I ever saw. In other words, when you're battling with the devil, it's temptation, it's a struggle, it's hard, 
it's not pleasant it's difficult and so he didn't have any pleasant looks whatever it was just tough until it was finally over and so when the battle was over christian said i will here give thanks to him that delivered me out of the mouth of the lion to him that did help me against apollyon and so he did saying great beelzebub the captain of this fiend designed my ruin therefore to this end he sent him harnessed out and he with rage that hellish was did fiercely me engage but blessed michael helped me and i by dint of sword did quickly make him fly therefore to him let me give lasting praise and thank and bless his holy name always now it's interesting the struggle the battle with apollyon he says represents look what it says beelzebub the captain sent him out now this is my theory and i don't know i may be wrong about this but it may be that none of you has actually ever literally dealt with the devil. What do I mean by saying that? Well, I don't want to ascribe to the devil omnipresence and omnipotence, which we ascribe to God. And therefore, if the devil is not omnipresent, that means he's not everywhere at once. That means he's got to marshal his strength and deal only with certain important people, right? But he's got a kingdom, an organization, doesn't he? There are powers and principalities and forces of darkness. There's order and organization. And so it may be that in fighting the devil, you're really just fighting his kingdom. And it is a representative of the devil who's come out to fight you. Now, like I said, it's only a theory, but I don't think the devil's omnipresent. He's not everywhere all at once. So I don't know if that hurts your pride that you never merited actually battling with the devil. Um, but uh, who knows, maybe he'll become ever more dangerous and sooner or later he'll come after you the way he came after Jesus. But uh, I think to myself, what a terrible thing that, that Jesus had to face the devil face to face in that temptation. But how great is it that the captain of our salvation was equal to the task? Isn't that wonderful? Conversely, how terrible for Judas when he was actually Satan-infested, Satan-possessed, not demon-possessed, Satan-possessed. At any rate, that's the struggle. Now, the fact of the matter is, you must suffer. You must go through this if you're going to reign with Christ. Romans chapter 8 says, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. What kind of suffering? Well, it says in Hebrews 2.18, he himself suffered when he was tempted. The temptation itself is a suffering. It's one of the great insights that I've had in my own Christian life. The fact of the matter is, standing up under times of temptation hurts. It's hard, isn't it? And if you don't think so, you will yield to it. Because once it starts to ramp up its pain in your life, you'll start saying, I never bargained for this, and you'll yield, right? Christ suffered when he was tempted and never yielded. And so we have to be willing to fight. How long did this battle go on? Half a day. Are you willing to fight that long rather than yield to sin? Jesus would rather die than yield to temptation. Literally, rather die than sin. How about us? And that's what we need to think about, the battle. In the end, though, the Lord refreshes him. He so refresh, re refreshes himself, he addresses himself to his journey. Only this time he's got his sword drawn in his hand, so he continues on. Now, at the end of this valley was another valley. And this one is called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And Christian must needs go through uh, that valley because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. Now, this valley is a very solitary place. The prophet Jeremiah describes it thus, a wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and of the shadow of death, a land that no one, that no man passed through and where no man dwelt, Jeremiah 2.6. Now here Christian was worse put to it than in his fight with Apollyon, as by the sequel you shall see. 
So in other words, this is even worse than his struggle with the devil. I saw then in my dream that when Christian was got to the borders of the shadow of death, there met him two men, children of them that brought up an evil report of the good land, Numbers 13, making haste to go back to whom Christian spake as follows. Whither are you going? They said, back, back. And we would have you to do so too if either life or peace is prized by you. They're running, they're out of breath. Why, what's the matter, said Christian. Matter, said they. We were going that way as you were and went as far as we dared. And indeed, we're almost past coming back. For had we gone a little further, we had not been here able to bring you the news of all the terrible things you're about to face. Oh my goodness. Well, what have you met with, said Christian? Why, we were almost in the valley of the shadow of death, but that by good hap, we looked before us and saw the danger before we came to it. And now they're running away. It's interesting that Bunyan says they're the descendants of the spies that brought back a bad report from the promised land. These are discouraging brothers and sisters, supposedly, who come back and say, of the road ahead, it's hard, you'll never make it, give up. Right? Don't try, give up. The road ahead is too tough. He's already met these two. Remember Timorous and the other one who fled from the lions? Trying to put discouragement and fear in Christian. Well, what have you seen, said Christian? Seen? Why, the valley itself, which is as dark as pitch. We also saw there the hobgoblins, satyrs and dragons of the pit. We heard also that in that valley there was a continual howling and yelling as of a people under unutterable misery who sat there bound in affliction and irons and over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. In a word, it is every whit dreadful, being utterly without order. Then said Christian, I perceive not yet but what you have said, but this is, this is my way to the desired haven. I can't go any other way. This is the road to the celestial city. I've got to keep going. Be it thy way, they said, we will not choose it for ours. And so they parted. And Christian went on his way, but still with his sword drawn in his hand, for fear lest he should be assaulted. I saw then in my dream, so far, so far as this valley reached, there was on the right hand a very deep ditch. That ditch uh, is it into which the blind have been led. The blind in all ages have both uh, there miserably perished. So as the blind lead the blind, it's into that ditch that they fall in and perish. Again, behold, on the left side, there was a very dangerous quag into which if even a good man falls, he can find no bottom for his foot to stand on. Into that quag, King David once did fall and had no doubt therein been smothered had, he not he, had not he that is able plucked him out. The pathway here also was exceedingly narrow and therefore good Christian was the more put to it. For when he sought in the dark to shun the ditch on the one hand, he was ready to tip over into the mire on the other. Also, when he sought to escape the mire without great carefulness, he would be ready to fall into the ditch. Thus he went on, and I heard him sigh bitterly. For besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway here was so dark that oftentimes when he lift up his foot to set it forward, he knew not where or upon what he should set it next. About the midst of this valley, I perceived the, the mouth of hell to be, and it stood also hard by the wayside. Now thought Christian, what shall I do if ever and anon the flame and smoke would come out in such abundance with sparks and hideous noises, things that, listen, cared not for Christian's sword as did Apollyon before. In other words, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God is not helpful here. And so therefore he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. Remember in, he, in Ephesians 6, after listing all of the armor of the Christian soldier says and 
pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And so this is all prayer and he begins to pray. He cries out, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. And thus he went on a great while, yet the flames would still be reaching toward him. Also he heard doleful voices rushing to and fro, so that sometimes he thought that he should be torn in pieces or trodden down like mire in the streets. This frightful sight was seen and these dreadful noises were heard by him for several miles together. And coming to a place where he thought he heard a company of fiends coming toward him to meet him, he stopped and began to muse what he had best to do. Sometimes he thought he had half a thought to go back. And then again he thought he might be halfway through the valley, and he remembered also how he had already vanquished many a danger, and that the danger of going back might actually be even greater than going forward. So he resolved to go on. Yet the fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer. But when they were almost upon him, he cried out with a most vehement voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord God. And so they gave back and came no further. One thing I would not let slip. I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice. And thus I perceived it. Just when he was come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones, demons, got up behind him and stepped up softly to him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. So here's the demons and they're whispering things into his brain as though they were his own thoughts. And he thought, oh no, I, I blasphemed. He thinks he's already committed these sins. It's not been him, but the demons speaking into his brain. This put Christian even more to it than anything he had met with before. Even to think that now he should blaspheme him who loved his soul. And so he's grieved at these blasphemous insinuations into his mind. It's a tough time, the valley of the shadow of death. But then, after he traveled for a little while, he remembered a scripture verse. What do you think it is? That's right. Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for thou art with me. Then he was glad, and for three reasons. Typical Puritan, always making lists. First, because he gathered from thence that some who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. Number one, there's actually fellowship in the valley of the shadow of death. Other people are going through it too. It wasn't just him, but King David, for example, went through it. Secondly, for, he, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state. And why not thought he with me, though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive it. In other words, others walked through the valley of the shadow of death and they feared not. Why? Because God was with them. So, by logic, I guess if I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, God must also be with me though I don't feel it. Have you ever heard of Vance Havner? He's a minister here in this state, North Carolina. And he was talking about after the de death of his wife and all the grief and the sorrow and the other problems that went through it. Uh, and they asked him, how is it for you in the <laughs> valley of the shadow of death? He said, uh, he said, I am going through it. I'm not lingering in it. Praise God, I'm going through it. That's the thing, you're making progress. He said, it's tough, it's a hard time, but I'm not going to build a house here. You know, I'm going to keep on moving. And so that's what he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for thou art with me. And so this is a very, very tough trial, but he keeps moving, he keeps making progress. Thirdly, for that he hoped that he might obtain or overtake them to have company by and by. And so he went on and called to them that was before, but he knew not what to answer, for he also thought himself to be alone. So he's going to try to find some other pilgrims to travel with so that he's not alone. So those are the three thoughts of encouragement that he gets out of Psalm uh, 23, verse 4. Now, eventually morning 
came, and he looked back, not out of desire to return, but to see by the light of the day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. And so he saw more perfectly the ditch that was on the one hand and the quag that was on the other, and how narrow the way was between them. And he also saw the hobgoblins and satyrs, satyrs and uh, dragons of the pit, but all afar off, for after the break of day they'd come not close. Yet they were discovered to him according to that which is written. He discovered deep things out of darkness and bringeth out to light the shadow of death. So he stands for a moment. It's, it's, the sun has come up. It's bright now. And he can look back over that dark path that he has just tread and he can see all of the dangers. And he realizes what a terrible uh, uh, trial this was. Now as Christian, it says, much affected in his deliverance from all the dangers of his solitary way. He was moved with emotion as he saw. In effect, he looked back and said, how in the world did I get through that? How in the world did I not fall one side or the other? I couldn't see. I wasn't making any progress. How did I get through it? How did I survive? And he knows how he survived. He was moved emotionally to realize he only survived by the grace of God. And about this time, it says, the sun was rising, and this was another mercy to Christian, for you must note, listen to this, that though the first part of the valley of the shadow of death was dangerous, yet the second part, which he was yet to go, was, if possible, even more dangerous. Now, we've already been through the valley of humiliation and the struggle with Apollyon, and then he tells us that's nothing compared to the valley of shadow of death. Now, we're halfway through that, and we're just told that's nothing compared to the rest of the valley of the shadow of death. And this is what he says. For from the place where he now stood, even to the end of the valley, the way was all along set so full of snares, traps, gins, and nets here and there, and so full of pits and pitfalls, deep holes and shelvings down there, that had it now been dark, as it was when he came first through that part of the way, he had been, and had he had a thousand souls, they had in reason been cast away. In other words, if he could go through a thousand times, he wouldn't make it even once if it were dark. And this is what he's saying. It's just incredibly dangerous, this Christian journey. And I guess what Bunyan's getting at here is this. You cannot make this journey alone. You can make it without God's help. It's impossible. Too many trials even to mention. It says, take a minute in your Bibles to look at Psalm 94, which I found very appropriate. Psalm 94. Verse 17 through 19. Could somebody read that for me? Psalm 94, 17 through 19. up well with Christian's experience, especially the first part, verse 17. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would have been destroyed. And I think any Christian can say that. Isn't that true? Can you make even a, a day's journey in this pilgrim way without God's help? The answer is absolutely not. And that's about what Bunyan's getting at here. There's so many traps and snares and ways to trip and fall and temptations and insinuations and plots of the devil and the world and the flesh and all of these things coming at you all the time that you cannot make even a single day without God's help. One final thing we're going to talk about tonight. Next week I won't be here. Scott will, will be taking us as we meet faithful. And Christian and faithful go on and have some godly conversations together. And that should be great. But uh, the last little section here is uh, this 
this matter with Pope and Pagan. I think this is fascinating. In this light, therefore, he came to the end of the valley. And now I saw in my dream that at the end of this valley lay blood, bones, ashes, and mangled bodies of men, even of pilgrims that had gone this way formerly. And while I was musing what should be the reason, I espied a little before me a cave where two giants, Pope and Pagan, capital letters, Pope and Pagan, dwelt in old time, by whose power and tyranny the men whose bones and blood and ashes, etc., lay there were cruelly put to death. But by this place Christian went without much danger. (laughs) Whereat I somewhat wondered, but I have learned since that Pagan has been dead many a day. And as for the other, Pope, Though he be yet alive, he is by reason of age and also of the many shrewd brushes that he met with in his younger days, grown so crazy and stiff in his joints that he can now do little more than sit in his cave's mouth, grinning at pilgrims as they go by and biting his nails because he cannot come at them. Uh, You have to know church history somewhat to realize just how rich this is. Bunyan is living in the 17th century in England just a hundred years before before that in the time of Bloody Mary a Catholic queen and all that Protestants were being slaughtered literally slaughtered for their faith and as a result of that persecution many I'm sure stumbled and fell and, and had grievous trials you know to whether they would confess Christ as their savior or not and so uh, that was a hundred years ago though and according to Bunyan uh, Peg, uh, Pope is now a toothless old decrepit giant and all he can do is just kind of smile as pilgrims make their progress right on by him, one after the other. Now, what's interesting is, um, you know, the footnotes and others say, did he speak a little too soon? Because Pope is still around, and some people wonder, you know, the footnote writers and others, if Pope is going to make his comeback in the final days. We don't really know. I know this, Pagan sure making his comeback here in America. Pagan, that non-Christian pagan religion, uh, we are essentially spiritual beings, aren't we? We're not going to be atheistic. We're going to worship something. And if we reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to worship something. And so watch for a big comeback for paganism, even in America. But in Bunyan's day, Pope and Pagan were just toothless giants who could do very little. So I saw that Christian went on his way, and yet at the sight of the old man that sat at the mouth of the cave, he could not tell what to think, especially because he spake to them, spake to him, though he could not go after him, saying, You will never mend till more of you be burned. <laughs> Said, you know, so he's calling out, saying, I wish I could burn more of you, but of course, those days are over. He's regretting the days you know, are past now when I can't burn these guys at the stake. But he held his peace and set a good face on, and so he went by and caught no more ill. And then sang Christian... O world of wonders, I can say no less, that I should be preserved in that distress that I have met with here. O blessed be the hand that from it hath delivered me. Dangers and darkness, devils, hell and sin did compass me while I was in the, while I this veil was in. Yea, snares and pits and traps and nets did lie. My path about that worthless, silly eye might have been catched and tangled and cast down. But since I live, let Jesus wear the crown. So he just sings a celebration song. We know it, and Amazing Grace says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And that's about what he's saying. Uh, Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will what? Lead me home. Isn't that a great, great uh, assurance? And why don't we end with that? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied tonight. We thank you for your deliverance. Uh, of Christians who have set out to 
say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to take on temptations and to stand firm. Father, I pray that if there are any here in this room that are struggling with besetting sins, that are troubled by temptations, and Satan's lying to them and telling them in this battle that they must lose in the end, I pray that they would count themselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I pray that they'd realize that they have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in them. And that they have all power and that all they need to do is resist the devil and he will most certainly flee from them. I pray that they would put on their spiritual armor, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation. and That they would have their feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That they would take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that they would pray in the spirit as they take on the devil. That they would resist the devil and he would flee. If, on the other hand, there are any that are going through the valley of the shadow of death and there's so much discouragement and despair and fear, I pray, Father, that you would get them through that trial, encourage them and help them to see that you are with them. I pray that they would, like Christian, resort to all prayer, praying consistently moment by moment until they are through and can look back at the many dangers, toils, and snares that you've brought them through. Thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for the things we've studied. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.